you're on. Good. This is good, yeah. Um, do that intro bit that you do so well. Give it a go. Um, welcome to the Dash Arts Podcast, seeing the world through an artistic lens. I'm Josephine Burton. Josephine, it's nice to join you back in the studio and to continue being the podcast producer. My name's Marie, I should say. Hello. <laughs> we join you in the midst of a new project. I wanted to get you in the studio because I wanted to hear what's been happening. Yeah, so we've just started working on a project exploring the work of a writer called Isaac Babel. Who I had never heard of until you mentioned his name to me. There are some people who heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, yes. we, at Dash Arts, we, when we were working in the former Soviet Union, the work kind of when we made projects with artists from across the former Soviet space, we, uh, we actually focused on a, a whole cafe on him. Our, our cafes were, there's, were live events with conversation and performance, and they used to happen monthly at Rich Mix and across the country. And uh, we actually explored and launched a book called Odessa Stories, which was uh, published by a gorgeous small publishing company called Pushkin Press. And um, it was short stories recently translated by American-Ukrainian writer Boris Draluk. I was born in Odessa in 1982 and uh, uh, immigrated with my family to the United States in 1991. We came to Los Angeles, which um, is like Odessa times uh, 20. Uh, uh, also a remarkably diverse city, also on the coast of the sea, also very far from the centers of power, um, an eccentric city uh, with its own culture. Uh, and so I felt right at home. Um, I translate almost exclusively uh, literature connected with uh, Ukraine, um, uh, authors of the 19-teens, 1920s, and 1930s who either are Odessans or from other parts of the Ukraine writing in Russian, but a Russian that is very much inflected by the cultures of, of Ukraine. That's me. Babel lived 100 years ago in Russia. Rather than me attempt to tell you who Babel was, um, I thought it would be quite fun to reach out to Boris Draluk himself. Boris we used to be based in the UK at the University of St Andrews. He's now over at the University of Tulsa. I thought he would give us a brilliant potted history for the podcast on who Babel was. Well, I think he's, he's frequently regarded now as, as one of the great uh, prose writers of the 20th century, um, a revolutionary stylist, um, revolutionary in two senses of the word. He, he, he definitely revolutionized um, uh, the uh, literary language um, in his na native environment, um, he brought something new to Russian literature, Russian language literature. And he was also associated um, through his writing with the tremendous changes uh, that swept across the former Russian uh, empire, what became the Soviet Union, uh, during the revolution and civil war. So he was revolutionary in those, in, in those ways. He was a Jewish writer born in Odessa uh, at the tail end of the 19th century in 1894. He was born in what is frequently called the Jewish ghetto in Odessa, although Odessa was such a Jewish town, I, I hesitate to use the, the term ghetto to describe any of its neighborhoods, but the neighborhood is Moldavanka, the, the more dangerous, the rougher neighborhood uh, in Odessa. His family moved away to a nearby town, Mykolaiv, and uh, returned just a few years later and settled in a much nicer part of town. He did not exactly grow up in poverty, but he was fascinated by the life of Moldavanka and drew on it for a number of stories in the 1920s, especially on, on the life of the uh, Jewish gangsters and of those simply trying to make ends meet uh, in a society that was dead set against their success. 
that's one cycle of stories for which he's famous. The other cycle of stories has him as a political commissar, essentially a reporter attached to a division of uh, Cossacks uh, who are fighting against the Poles in what is now Ukraine and witnessing the horrors of that conflict. Um, that, thank you. The, my understanding is that that kind of group of work was the Red Cavalry and the Odessa stories. They were all published around the same time, right, in the early 20s when he must have been, what, how old was he, like 30? Yes, he was, he was, in, his, he was in his 20s at the time. And uh, they were, uh, yeah, 20, 20s, uh, heading into his 30s. And they were published uh, at the very same time. I mean, he, in, you know, in one journal you might have... Uh, one of the stories of the Red Cavalry cycle and another journal at the same time, the same month, you'd, you'd have one of the Odessa stories. So they're they're um, very much bound together. And I suppose what what um, I'm particularly interested in exploring in Bubble is the fact that he's sort of torn in many directions simultaneously. Like he he's sort of he's he it's a poison chalice to be this embedded writer on the front he knows or he's been told that he needs to to be on the front in order to kind of curry favor with the right people and make it as a writer and he's deeply ambitious for his for his career but obviously he's covering stuff which is brutal and horrific and he needs to present it as a heroic act he's he's grappling with how to do those things simultaneously in his writing so the kind of beauty of the landscape is sort of like with this sort of festering blood lying across it and severed heads of sons, are, it sort of speaks to that tension at the heart of him by, you know, like he, he can sort of feel it in his heart as he's writing, you know, you feel it in his head and his heart are kind of in opposition as he's writing. Right now I'd like to read um, my translation of the first story in the Red Cavalry Cycle, Crossing This Brooch. Um, I'll read the opening. The 6th Division Commander reported that Novograd Volinsk was taken today at dawn. The staff has moved out of Krepivno and our transport sprawls in a noisy rear guard along the highway that runs from Brest to Warsaw and was built on the bones of peasant men by Nicholas I. Fields of scarlet poppies blossom around us. A midday breeze plays in the yellowing rye and virgin buckwheat rises on the horizon like the wall of a distant monastery. The quiet Valin bends. Valin recedes from us into, a, into the pearly mists of birch groves and creeps into the flowery hills, its feeble arms getting tangled in thickets of hops. An orange sun rolls across the sky like a severed head. A gentle light glitters in the ravines of clouds and the banners of sunset flutter over our heads. The scent of yesterday's blood and dead horses seeps into the evening coolness. The blackened spruce roars, twisting the foamy knots of its rapids. The bridges are destroyed and we are fording the river. A stately moon lies on the waves. The horses sink up to their backs and sonorous streams trickle between hundreds of horses' legs. Someone is drowning, loudly disparaging the Mother of God. The river is strewn with the black squares of carts, filled with rumbling whistling and songs the thunder over snakes of moonlight and glistening pits. A Babel today, right? So the, yeah. I'm aware that Babel wrote in Russian. Uh, yes. He was, he was born in what is now Ukraine. That is in itself is, is a challenge, Russian language in Ukraine today. He was totally, his life was totally destroyed under the Soviet Union. He covered 
this world, there's this region, which is obviously now being fought over between Russia and Ukraine. At the time, it was being fought over, you know, between not dissimilar groups of people 100 years ago that he was covering as part of the the Soviet-Polish war. I'm really interested in your reflections on how we possibly navigate all of these issues right now, because of course, it's not that I don't want to shy away from it. It is the reason why I'm making this work. How can I understand what's going on through Babel? That's a very good question. It's a very difficult, complicated question. And uh, until this war is, is over, I don't think we'll have a certain answer uh, regarding Bobby's fate as a Ukrainian author. But I do believe he is a Ukrainian author uh, in as much as Odessa is Ukraine. I think Odessa is a profoundly cosmopolitan place, a place that has a history that cannot be replicated uh, and uh, has never been replicated. The identity of, the, of Odessa is a mix of influences and uh, streams of cultural contribution that exists nowhere else in the world. Ukrainian culture is one of the constituent elements of the Odessan identity, but it is a kind of city-state and always has been. Never fully part of the Russian Empire um, because it was very far away from the center of power, and that allowed for it to develop in its own way, always heavily Jewish from the very start. Its language always a mix of Yiddish, Ukrainian, Russian, and various other tongues, including French. For the last 30 years, it has been an independent Ukraine, and it has enjoyed being an independent Ukraine. It has pledged allegiance to this nation, and the nation has, by and large, respected the uniqueness of this place and protected it. Most Odessans don't want to belong anywhere other than Ukraine. You know, r- right now, in this current moment, what, what Bible stories of the war uh, of, of the Red Cavalry can show us is how complicated and how dangerous and how destructive um, even a conflict for supposedly good can be. It can show us what imperial forces do to people who are disempowered, who are simply caught between Bible stories can show us what life for people who have to endure war uh, and did not choose war, what that looks like. But his stories of Odessa show us what diversity we find in the territory of Ukraine, how different the Russian-speaking community of Ukraine is uh, from the Russian-speaking community of Russia. Um, It shows us... um, how culture can develop in a city that has so many different elements going on at the same time. Josephine, when did you think, oh, Isaac Babel, there's a story here for Dash? There's a, there, is a, there is a kind of background to working on Babel in this project. It's because about six months ago, I went for a cup of coffee with my good friend, Alexandrina, who uh, wanted me to meet a, a musician, friend, musician friend of hers called Golda Amirova. And Golda is from Ukraine. She's actually born in Odessa. She's a Jewish cabaret singer based in Odessa who has relocated to London because of the current Russian invasion in, in Ukraine. And Sasha wanted me to meet her. She loves Golda. She loves her as a performer. Golda has been the inspiration for the project. Hello, everybody. My name is Golda. Uh, I'm Yorova. Uh, originally, I'm from Ukraine. So I was born in Odessa. 
the very, very, very famous city in Ukraine. And, and I'm very, very proud that I was born there. Uh, I'm an artist, I'm a performer, I'm a composer, I'm a piano player, and I'm a creator of first Jewish musical theater in Ukraine. And I was like an ambas- ambassador of Jewish musical culture in Ukraine. So, yes, I'm just a Jewish girl from Ukraine. And after the like disaster and horrible things were started, I'm living in London, and a lot of times I spend time in Tel Aviv. So now I'm speaking with you from Tel Aviv, exactly from the streets of Tel Aviv. <laughs> and you, you hear the wind, and this is wind from the sea. I just wondered if the way into making a project with... Golda was actually to look at Isaac Bubble, to go back to his stories, to see if we can find kind of resonance in his stories from 100 years ago today, which might explain why I would be working with Golda, who has been displaced by the war. Uh, Just, you know, I survived from when the war started and I was living in a family. And for me, it was hard start from zero from the beginning because I lose everything what I had in my previous life. And I work hard every day to make a new connections with people. And London gives me a lot, a lot, gives me wonderful people, gives me opportunities, gives me like concerts. Like, you know, I'm for now, like after past this year, I realized that thanks God, I, I I'm not like I'm not giving up. I mean I'm I'm following, I'm surviving, so I'm very thankful and I'm just God blessed, you know. <laughs> so I've been spending a few kind of months working with obviously speaking to Boris. Boris has been amazing in terms of informing me and helping me think about the bubble, the writer. And then I've been working with two phenomenal creative friends and colleagues Mark Rosenblatt who is a playwright and a director and Jonathan Walton who's a composer and the three of us and have been sort of mulling over reading talking a lot <laughs> about kind of ideas and how we might begin to explore Bubbles stories today and Jonathan wants to write a musical so one we have to sort of think about how we bring music in and and really importantly we need to find ways to make it relevant so you know like what is it that we can learn from Babel that will help us understand the mess of that region today for some reason i'm reading all of these stories of course all of these short stories and i get the sense time and time again of this sort of golden fragments small golden fragments that I find running through, which are normally extraordinarily poetic images amongst all the filth and all the muck and all the squalor and all the injustice. Um, I find these incredibly beautiful, small poetic excerpts. And somehow to me, these are little jewels. It feels like a very fragmented world. And all of these stories, none of them to me feel like they are big enough to sustain a show but these these little gems to me seem within them like worlds in themselves and i love them like like i think i i sent you this one that said um lifeless jewish stettles cling to the feet of lordly estates i thought and there are so many every time i'm reading the stories i come across a couple of lines like that and they make me stop the village floated and swelled crimson clay flowing from its dismal wounds. 
The first stars sparkled above me and plunged into the clouds. Rain lashed at the willows and grew weary. Evening flew up into the sky like a flock of birds, and darkness lowered its wet wreath onto my head. Dead tired and stooping beneath my funereal crown, I walked on, begging fate for the simplest of knacks, the knack of killing a man. Amongst the violence and amongst the squalor are these incredibly well-honed filigree phrases. Do you think you'd make songs with them? Well, I don't know. I mean, hmm. yesterday I had a drink. I, ha I have a, um, a Ukrainian friend. There's a, there's a common friend of ours who is a human rights defender and worked with refugees in Ukraine. And he was arrested. He was captured by the Russians in Donbass and arrested and sentenced to 13 years in jail for being some kind of fascist leader who apparently oversaw the indiscriminate bombing of kindergarten. It was like literally just made up. And so, I, so I'm writing a song for him. And I, and I met her yesterday and we were talking about, she, she, she started talking about friends of hers who have been killed or captured. And she said it's basically like on her Facebook feed. You know, you've got like X hundred friends on Facebook and it's like, like every now and then one of them will go. And, uh, and so that reminded me again and made me think, sort of feel uncomfortable about doing something which is, has a feeling of trivializing. Music can be trivializing. Um, I don't want it to be. What do you think? What do you think, Mark, about that sort of thought about how music can? How I don't music agree. I mean, I think music music can do anything. I'm like like any medium, it can trivialize or it can elevate. I mean, it can be transcendent. So, you know, there are operas about tragedies. I don't. I, don't, I just don't think that. I think the right context, the you know, the right context, the right perspective. Music can draw something out illuminate material hamilton is obviously a show about something completely different uh it's about using hip-hop to uh help reclaim a narrative of american identity and history that previously had excluded the purveyors of hip-hop i mean you know we could go through the work of barbell for for decades and continue to as we're doing in a very lovely thoughtful way find you know identify things that we like or even the shells of story that we might you know shards of story that we might be drawn to attracted to but um and and you know there could there were sort of as a whole multiverse of like possible choices we could make about what stories we want to tell but i think until we've got something that underpins it that is almost like separate from the, the material in a way like the, the a kernel of a feat of a of a position of a perspective that we want to explore we won't you know we, we won't be able to choose anything i think that i uh, i think what you said is a piece of musical theater about something bursting into song i think yeah yeah i think it's probably the dancing <laughs> the singing and dancing the dancing element is probably the trivializing element or maybe there maybe may, maybe there's a way to do that also but no no i don't know I, th uh, I think we're confusing lots of things here guys like there are so many different forms of musical like 
the singing and dancing thing is 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 completely separate from what we're talking about. We've got many many options. Yeah. There's song. There are song cycles. There are there are there is the Broadway musical, which is a form which which mongrelizes l- opera, dance, ballet. Um, and drama, written drama, and seeks to kind of create something for the masses, which uses all of those in one show. We're talking about a century's worth of of theatre, of, of live performance of many, many kinds that uses song in it. The, the, the thing that will drive this, the thing that will and that, that will allow it to bear fruit is trying to identify what it is that we have, to, what it is we're trying to say. And if that thing is a, a morally ambiguous thing, which is usually for me the best place in which to start, you will be able to find space in everything that you produce, yes, yes, yes. writing music that can create a, a space for complexity. You know, we know this. We know what our point of view is, right? We know that what we feel that the Russian. Well, I feel that what the Russians are doing is bad. I'm sure this is a shared feeling. And 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 oppression is bad. That in itself leads can lead to, unless you're breath sometimes, sentimentality, because you're just stating something that's known at the beginning and is where it gets to at the end, and often can result in, you know, the death of the protagonist at the hands of the oppressor. But if we could find something, I mean, I, this is where I'd be interested, is we can find something in the space between, which is um about. I don't know, a song cycle in the style of Vile. I really love, I love that you've chosen that moment to focus on, Marie, when you were listening to our, you were being like the fly on the wall of our rehearsal room. Because actually that kind of grappling with the kind of grappling with our own ambiguity about whether or not we should be uh, focusing on this material and how to do it, how to approach it in sensitive, thoughtful ways. It's like the producers, right? You can't really make art. How do you make art about the Holocaust? It's that sort of same question. They're the most interesting moments, like when you actually get those kind of ambivalence that people feel and that uncertainty, should I go this way, should I go, you know, like those moments are really the most interesting moments of theatre. And what I find so interesting about Isaac Bubble is that you can kind of, you you can pick though that kind of ambivalence, the kind of moral ambivalence, like, you know, should I do that? But then I'm, by doing that, I'm making, a, you know, I'm making my pact with the devil or I'm, you know, I'm compromising all my beliefs. Uh, he li- I think he, that's how he lived in this sort of being pulled in different directions all the time. And so I asked Boris to help us think about what, what like what Babel might have been thinking about and struggling with, particularly during the 20s, because he was obviously trying to like trying to be published, but, but then kind of grappling with like how much he should be endorsing what was going on. And particularly as the 20s rolled on and as Stalin like became more all-powerful and more of the horror of that time was being revealed like you know what were the key moments in Babel's life when he would have faced those big searching questions and and how and how would he have made those decisions what really bothered people uh in positions of power was the ambiguity of his work irreducible ambiguity the fact that his attitude was never really clear um you know was he a supporter of soviet rule was he not um, uh, was he uh, justifying the violence of the revolution or was he protesting against it? Um, it's very difficult to say uh, with any certainty uh, where he stood on these matters. And um, uh, this was no time for ambiguity in the 1930s. This was a time for clear-cut uh, statements of affiliation. What happened to him was that he published less and less 
but he didn't stop working altogether. He um, continued to work uh, of, uh, for the stage, to write for the stage, uh, or try to write for the stage. He continued to even uh, work uh, in the film industry. Um, and he, he traveled, um, but he uh, began to engage in foolhardy affairs uh, as as well as he he, he was quite a womanizer, and he began to engage in, in foolhardy affairs. And did he have like did uh, he have an affair with a the wife of a of a major player in the Soviet regime? He did the head the head of the the uh, uh, secret police. Uh, a foolish thing to do, mm -hmm. and um, uh, I think that a mix of uh, personal animus on the part of people in charge, uh, um, a mix of disdain for his great talent. Um, and uh, uh, also um, the you know the sense that that he was unreliable, untrust, untrustworthy, and uh, as I said, um, too ambiguous in his positions. Um, ultimately, led to his arrest, his interrogation, the confiscation of the manuscripts in which he was working, um, and his execution. He died really young, like he died at forty-five, which is phenomenal, really, given how prolific and what an impact he's made on kind of literary life uh, across the 20th century. Um, and he died very tragically. He was writing, he was obviously struggling to get published because everything seemed to have been censored and not getting through censors. But he was living in this sort of camp um, in the kind of the datchers that were attached to the writers' union. I think I'm going to say it was 1938. I might have got that wrong. Uh, and there was a warrant issued for his arrest, and it actually went to the um, NKVD. Went to arrest him in his in his flat in Moscow, and he wasn't there. And his what they call common law wife, his partner, said he was on the dacha, and she ended up driving with him in the car out to the dacha to arrest him. God knows why she went with him. As she went out there in the car. Imagine sitting in the car with him for two hours, or however long it was, to go and arrest him. And then he was taken back to the Lubyanka, where he was sort of uh, kind of accused of crimes. And then he served like a year in prison in the Lubyanka before they, what we think, before they shot him. And there's a whole lot of writing that he wrote in that cell that no was never published. And there's all sorts of stories about what he may or may not have been writing. So there's something very, very, very darkly, deeply, romantically interesting about that end. It was May 1939. Oh, was You're it? one year out. Well, he was arrested on May 1939. You can tell me that. We can keep that in the podcast. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can totally tell me I got it wrong. It's not May. I was so sure it was May 1938. It was May 1939. I should say that the internet told me that. I don't just know off the top of my head <laughs> that it was May 15th, 1939. I thought you'd just done more research than me. <laughs> It does bother me that uh, virtually everything published about Babel, you know, has uh, his mugshot on the cover or, or, or features his mugshot prominently. I mean, it is obviously a tragic end. Uh, he, he wasn't alone uh, in this. So many of the great writers of the Soviet period met um, the same end. But by focusing too much on, on his death, we, we um, are in danger of ignoring the incredible life force um, that he was able to capture on the page. And it was a death-haunted life force, but it was absolutely irrepressible. And um, especially the stories of, of life in, in uh, Odessa, they brim with vitality. And uh, uh, I hate to think uh, of him reduced to a black and white uh, mugshot. Now I'll read a section of a short story from uh, uh, the Odessa cycle. There are actually two cycles within the Odessa stories. One concerns the uh, Odessan myth, the myth of wild, carefree, uh, revolutionary gangsters and their larger-than-life exploits. And the other cycle 
concerns the uh, very down-to-earth, very, in, in some ways, humble uh, experiences of a poor Jewish family who very much wish to um, succeed in a world that is in every way working against them. And uh, stories are related uh, through the perspective of a little boy, a little boy who witnesses great violence uh, in, in the form of the pogroms um, that affected the Jewish community in the Pale of Settlement. In this story, uh, the story of my uh, dovecoat, Babel's uh, hero, uh, who is Babel himself, a kind of autobiographical uh, story, uh, has just satisfied the, uh, the academic requirement for entry into a, an elite high school. And his uh, reward is uh, his dream come true, a few doves um, whom he can, which he can raise. But uh, as soon as he buys the doves, a pogrom breaks out. The cripple rifled through the doves with a fleshy hand, pulling out a female. The bird lay flay on, my, on his palm, its feet in the air. He swiped me hard with a hand holding the dove. Katusha's cotton-clad backside flipped before my eyes, and I fell to the ground in my new overcoat. Gotta stamp out their seed, Katusha said, straightening up above the bonnets. Can't stand their seed and their stinking men. She had more to say about our seed, but I was no longer listening. I lay on the ground, the crushed bird's innards sliding from my temple. They ran down my cheek, winding, dribbling, and blinding me. The dove's tender gut slipped down my forehead, and I shut my only unplastered eye so that I wouldn't have to see the world laid bare before me. The world was small and terrible. There was a pebble lying in front of me, a jagged pebble like the face of an old woman with a large jaw, and a piece of string and a clump of feathers still breathing. My world was small and terrible. I shut my eyes so that I wouldn't have to see it, and pressed myself into the earth, which lay beneath me in soothing silence. This trodden earth had nothing in common with our lives, nothing in common with the anticipation of exams in our lives. Somewhere far away, disaster galloped along this very earth on a big horse, but the sound of its hooves was growing weaker, vanishing, and calmness, that bitter calmness that sometimes comes over children during calamities, suddenly obliterated the boundary between my body and the unmoving earth. The earth smelt of damp inner depths, of the graves, of flowers. I sensed its smell and wept without fear. I walked down an unfamiliar street, cluttered with white boxes, walked alone, adorned in bloody feathers, down pavements, swept as clean as if it were Sunday, and wept more bitterly, fully, and joyously than I would ever weep again in all my life. So then I want to ask you about what's next because we have met midway through this creative process of exploring Isaac Babel. So what's happening now? I really don't know. You kind of catch me in, right in the throes of trying to work out what the show is. So really imminently, I am meeting in person with uh, Jonathan and Mark to sort of to talk through an idea that I've been brewing um, of a possible kind of way in to tell some of uh, Bubbles' rich life. Um, and we're going to thrash it out a little and see if it's got legs, work out what kind of that those legs would be. Like, what's the show? Is there, you know, how do we bring in the music? Uh, what kind of performance space does it need? What kind of budget does it need? I mean, there, then we kind of kick into production mode. Um, and that's when my wider team very much more involved. 
um, with their kind of rational financial heads on and go, that's just totally absurd. You can't possibly think of that. Or <laughs> we'll work out what to do with the show. And hopefully it will be a new production coming to a theatre near you. Definitely not this year. <laughs> No, not we're halfway through 2023. Not yeah, now, no. but potentially 2024. Oh, I mean, that would be wonderful. I mean, obviously, it totally depends on all the other balls we're juggling. That's the intention. We've got. I, 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 it's definitely. There's definitely something incredibly exciting about it. It feels very resonant today. Uh, it's a different way of understanding um, the disruption and violence wrecked on lives you know obviously seeing and hearing the way that it affected bubbles life you can sort of see how it, how it could be told so how poignantly um on the stage so it feels relevant and right to do now i think it could be brilliant musically it could be amazing the creative team are fabulous fabulous you know they 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 reluctantly gave permission for being featured for their for their sort of slightly half baked thoughts to be featured on the podcast so definitely thank you to Jonathan Walton and Mark Rosenblatt um, for joining for joining me on my merry journey to the possibility of creating a show to Golda Amirova and to Alexandrina Markfo for their kind of inspiration to Boris Draliuk for his brilliant kind of encapsulation of all that is wonderful about Bubble and him and all that is wonderful about Boris himself um, who actually very generously spoke to me on his birthday I have to give a shout out to Boris for doing a reading on his birthday. It was Aww. I felt and very it, privileged. And it explains <laughs> why it's so beautiful. <laughs> um, and um, I think to, to you, Marie, for producing the podcast, and to all of you, our audience, for listening and going with us on the journey and supporting the podcast and supporting Dash Arts. And please spread the word, um, like the show uh, on all your platforms, and give us a lovely review and tell all your friends to listen to us and come and see the performance when it finally gets live. Yes, it will. I've got every faith in this one. It better do. We've put it in the podcast now, so let's see. <laughs> Thank you.